If you're a dog owner, safety and welfare for your pet are of the utmost concern. But there are so many so-called experts out there that many of us don't know where to turn to get the expert advice that we need. Welcome to Taming the Wild in Your Dog with noted dog expert and author Brian Bailey. In this program, we give you the tips you need to connect with your best friend with the most practical advice. Now, here's your host, Brian Bailey. Welcome, everyone. Uh, joined in the studio with my wife, Kira. How are you doing today, Kira? I am great. How are you doing, Joshua? I'm doing well. All righty. Well, I'm a little bit grouchy, so I'm just, uh, but I'm going to save it for next week. I think I just ran into my quota of people shoving their PhDs and their DVM veterinary diplomas and their Esquires in my face for the week. I, I think I've just had my quota. Well, and um, but anyway, um, I and, and I shouldn't. I shouldn't be grumpy about it because it's a challenge. Well, no, that too. But in the course of a conversation, if someone has to remind you about their big old diplomas, then I actually got them right where I want them because you're having to jump back behind that. You can't come up with any other defense. So well, anyway, I'll try not to be grouchy on the show. I'll just again save that for next week because next week then I can be grouchy and we'll be grouchy because uh, we're going to be talking about again people being unprofessional and the people that are not promoting the welfare of pets in America. Instead, they've just waged all out war and it's stupid and it's silly and it's actually unfortunately now becoming harmful. But again, we'll talk about that at the end of this show and see what's coming up. But in the meantime, you've got a new puppy and it's 2 a.m. And you're tossing and turning because your puppy is howling away in that crate. And you don't know what to do. The one trainer says, oh, you must go to that puppy and let that puppy out of its crate. You must do so and comfort that puppy. The other one says, no, ignore the puppy. Otherwise, they'll learn that if, you, if I scream, you come let me out. Bingo. That's how I get out of this predicament that I'm in. And then the internet says, oh, you should have never left that puppy in there in the first place. So shame on you for doing that. So now you're just confused as all get out and you can't get any sleep. What do you do? We get asked this quite a bit and we read about it quite a bit. Yes, yes, we do. Uh, well, you know, again, me, I'm going to do my homework. And I always suggest that you guys do your homework too, but you have to know where to go and make sure that the homework is correct. Make sure you get an unbiased opinions. Uh, so therefore, I dug a little deep into this and I'll talk a little bit about my you know, uh, my own personal observations, having studied wolves for many years and studying uh, all sorts of social predators, uh, lion cubs, wolf cubs, you name it. And of course, many, many, many dogs over, over many years. But first of all, I want to turn to a study that was done by the Department of Animal Science in the University of Milan in Italy, also in conjunction with the School of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Montreal, Canada, and the School of Veterinary Medicine in Quebec, Canada. And the title of their study is Puppy Behavior When Left Home Alone, Changes During the First Few Months After Adoption. And the purpose of the study was to determine variability in temporal distribution of puppy behavior when home alone during the first few months following adoption. All right, those are big scientific words that just simply mean we wanted to find out what the heck they did, you know, and what they did and what they didn't do. So they took 32 puppies ranging from seven weeks of age to 16 weeks of age, and they filmed them when home alone for 60 minutes. And 40% of the puppies tested were crated during that time. And they repeated the video one month later 
And then two months later, for a total of three total observations per puppy. Here's the results. So drum roll, please. Puppies spent most of their time exhibiting passive behaviors. Puppies vocalized an average of 2.7 to 6 minutes while separated from their owners, with the most being the youngest individuals and also the most recently adopted. So we'll talk about that. 15 cage puppies and puppies kept outside crates did not separate into two groups when graphing the behaviors, but instead were grouped together, indicating similar behavior. So that's important. The cage puppies and the puppies outside the cage displayed similar behavior. And most importantly, only three out of 32 were characterized by stress-related behaviors, such as lip licking and vocalization. These behaviors decreased over time with a mean duration in film one, the very first film, of 2.5 to 22 minutes by film number three, 1.5 minutes. The results of the study show that even if some of the puppies showed stress-related behaviors, these behaviors did not persist over time. All right. So again, uh, taking this into account, there's a few notes in the study, and, and I definitely agree with all of these. Separation protest is an adaptive behavior in puppies. Since it's uh, since it phylogenetically, the sequence of events involved in the evolutionary development of species are a taxonomic group of organisms. Again, I'm just reading straight from the, the study itself. So they're just basically giving you a definition of phylogenetically inclined type behaviors. Serves to help re reunite the puppy with its mother or other conspecifics. Now, again, the reason why they use like a uh, phylogenetic type uh, example is they're referring to the genetic relationship that dogs still share with wolves. So, again, anytime they need to dig real deep, uh, they want to go back into that ancestry and pull from it those instinct and internal mechanism, all those things that drive behavior. All of those genetic plasticity, all of that drives behavior because it's already there. Remember, once again, nothing evolves without prior antecedents. Every new, every new behavioral trait taps in to already pre-existing processes and structures when it comes to behavior. Again, that's just a scientific fact. It is void of bias, void of opinions. It just doesn't matter. It's a fact. Uh, so they noted that and they knew that these puppies would indeed howl, they would indeed cry out, and they all did. And they did it again, I, as I stayed up here for the very beginning, for about 2.7 to 6 minutes. And that's so that they can be rediscovered by their mother. Uh, there's a tendency to protest vocally when isolated tends to peak around six to nine weeks of age and then decreases significantly for puppies. So the tendency to protest when isolated does peak. And then it just drops off significantly, significantly. And although opinions differ with regard to the welfare of dogs that are placed in crates during owner absence, our results indicate that the crate did not influence the behavioral patterns shown by the puppies. One author of this study believes that gradual conditioning to a confined area such as a crate can actually help alleviate anxiety associated with owner departure. Again, another great point. And then, however, anecdotally, some dogs do exhibit distress signs only when confined in a crate. Yes, absolutely. There are going to be those dogs who will. 
And this behavior has been referred to as barrier frustration. And this was, uh, this research was done by Dr. Catherine Hoop of Cornell University in 1998. And I'm very aware of that study there. So again, just based off the study without even discussing it any further, this uh, research has found that, yeah, you know, they're, they're going to cry initially. I mean, what do babies do? Human babies. They scream. Yeah. I mean, after all, where's their food source? Where do I get my food? Is it not? I'm used to getting my food from mother or I'm used to getting food from some human who brings me food. So now all of a sudden, there's a barrier between me and that food. So, of course, I'm going to cry out. Uh, also, the reason why they cry out, if you were to separate little bitty bunnies at that same age, they would not cry out. Uh, reason being, my crying out draws the attention of that wolf mother who wants to come eat me and then regurgitate me to her cubs. So, again, it all depends on where you are on the food chain. Are you an apex predator? Where are you determines whether you cry out or not. But these are all natural. Puppies indeed will cry out. Uh, I've explained uh, in previous episodes about being in a novel environment. Wow, that's a very stressful event when you're in a brand new environment. The very first thing you're going to do is seek out the new rules of prediction and control. The very first things you will do. So yeah, I'm going to cry out. And I'm hoping that someone will come let me out of here. However, if they don't, then I'm given the opportunity to learn through my self-discovery that I, I will not die from being in this crate. Not at all. Not one bit. Uh, at, at, as a matter of fact, people will eventually come and let me out. And they will do that. And, and unless, again, you're just a horrible pet owner and you have no business owning a pet to begin with. But they learned that. And people will say, well, you know what? Wolf cubs are never left alone. And the first thing I will, my rebuttal to that would be, hmm, how much time have you spent observing them? Really? Have you ever observed wolf cubs? You know, if you can't, if you can't get away to the wild and actually do that, which is very difficult nowadays, you'd have to almost use uh, space type technology, uh, satellites, cameras, you name it, because these animals are very aloof when it comes to other humans. However, know this, a large pack, which is a large family unit, has about three generations of cubs, ranging everything from juveniles to adolescents to young adults that are getting ready to depart from the pack and go make their own packs. When they, you have a large pack like this, they can afford to leave a babysitter, and they often will. However, remember, at about two years of age, I will leave my pack and I will start my own pack. And when we do that, you're my very first cubs. Well, I'm here to tell you, mom has to eat. Dad cannot go off and bring enough food back for both his mate and for these cubs. So they will leave them. That's just a risk that they have to take. So therefore the internal driven behaviors from that phylogenetic relationship that wolf and dog share is, I will be okay. I will survive this. I have the biology to overcome this stress. We've never had a puppy that didn't eventually stop crying. I mean, I can think back about all of the different dogs that we've had, and I can't even think of one that didn't eventually stop fussing 
in the crate. But if you do have one that just won't stop, is it possible that 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 dog has a just a very weak genetic baseline and may need some behavioral assistance? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But even again, back to the study, three out of the 32 showed those characteristics right off the bat. They showed stress-related behaviors. However, even then, those decreased over time, all the way down to by the time they're just merely a couple of months older, they were all the way down to like 1.5 minutes, and that's it. So you should expect them to fuss some, like even for a couple of months, they may fuss when you first put them in there. Yeah. The, now, I will to say this much. You did allude to a point there. If you have a puppy, so you bring it home for seven weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, whatever, and it fusses, it cries, and it's doing that all the way past four months of age. Okay. Houston? We have a problem. And you you bet. That is something that will need to be addressed because the issue will grow beyond just confinement in a crate. Absolutely. You do have to observe. You do have to watch. You do have to give it a fair amount of time, a couple of weeks. But after that, hey, now we might need to take other steps because we have an animal who already has anxiety. Yeah. In other words, nothing attacked you while you were in that crate. Nothing dragged you out and tried to kill you, but yet you're anxious. Why are you anxious? Typically at that point there, it's, again, it's connected straight to genetics. I was born probably with about 25 to 40% less hippocampal volume than my littermates. And therefore, I'm anxious. And my stress response is constantly being mobilized. And it's a downward death spiral from that point on unless that condition is treated. You know, we also kind of have to take into consideration what kind of crate is being used. I mean, I, I know of a mini dog that will get in a wire crate that has openings on all four sides and they do show stress signals um, because it's kind of like they're trapped in a cage and they can be poked at any angle. Um, but the moment you put them in an enclosed crate that there's not openings on every, every side, they're able to relax and, and take a nap. So yeah. it, it has a lot to do with the type of crate that's being used. Oh, yeah. A study was done on this by UC Davis back in 1989. I mean, it goes back that far. Back when we were more receptive to the known fact, back before DNA, back before we actually knew that we know today that there's only a 0.2% difference in the mitochondrial DNA. Back in the day, we simply went by behaviors, compared behaviors of dogs to wolves, and therefore, we were able to start implementing some of the same behaviors or creating a or replicating a environmental condition. And in the study in which they did, they found that every dog that was put in the wire kennels versus the enclosed kennels, like a plastic one or just covered up or whatever, showed a marked increase in elevated stress. Uh, you're right. Uh, they're den-dwelling animals, not so much for their comfort. Again, Arctic wolves, uh, they, they, they can't dig into the ground. They'll just pull up dead limbs, dead drift, uh, bushes, you name it, mud mounds, you, anything that they can because there's permafrost. At least there is still now, but it's going away quite rapidly with global warming. And maybe they will turn into den dwelling creatures. But all the rest of the wolves, no, they'll dig a deep hole in the ground and many year, year after year, they'll usually come back to that same den. Those cubs are in that den for their protection. For their protection, because, hey, 
it's a golden opportunity if you are another wolf from a different pack, if you can kill all of these wolf cubs. Wow, not only does it eliminate future competitors, but it provides you with life-sustaining energy. Same thing goes for that wolverine, for that badger, for that big eagle, uh, the big owls, you name it. They're down in a hole to keep them safe. And when these mothers have to go off on their own, Wow. It's, uh, that's when they tend typically lose some of these cubs because they're of an age then that they're out of that hole. They're exploring their world around them. They're, they're moving off. But mom has to take that chance and just leave them and say, I, I hope you'll be okay. I'll be back, but I have to go get food. So what if a new puppy owner already has their like bird cage looking crate? and their puppy is showing signs of elevated stress. Can they just cover it with something or put a little ticking clock or something in the crate with them? Or what What can they do? Absolutely. A uh, couple things on that. Number one, if you are going to cover it, just remember, these go by the studies. Remember what studies have shown us. And also, I'm going to just tell you from personal experience. I mean, thousands of dogs I've given recommendations to, and I've received feedback from those owners. They... The stress response for the vast majority by far will decrease drastically within a couple of minutes. And then all of a sudden, boredom sets in. So what can I do while I'm in here? Well, first thing I can do is yank that blanket in here and turn it into a snowflake like kids do with scissors and a piece <laughs> of paper. I'm going to shred that bad boy. Uh, and then, of course, you run into the danger that it might ingest something harmful doing that. So my advice is this. If you're going to cover it with a blanket, Put something over, like a big sheet of plywood or some two-by-fours, whatever, anything that will allow the blanket to have about a two-inch standoff from the actual sides of the cage. So with their little pointed snouts, they can't reach out there, grab that blanket, and suck it right in. You know, funny story, I had a, a larger dog that we put in one of those to dry it. Now, that's fine for if you just bathe your dog. You need to dry it. You need to get air all the way around it. So I put this dog in this kennel. And I threw, I had a hat, a big floppy hat and, you know, protect me from the sun. And I tossed it on top of that kennel. Kid you not, I walked away for five minutes. I came back and the dog had eaten the center of that hat out. And it was wearing it like a, what are those <laughs> like things called? Well, no, like when you go to Hawaii and they put those flowers on it. Oh, LA? Yeah, it, it was wearing <laughs> it just like that. And I kid you not, that was in less than five minutes. Uh, so watch out for those wire kennels. But... <laughs> Do cover them up. Science has shown that. Many studies have been done on this, that just simply covering the crate, will, for most dogs, again, will lower the anxiety from being in there. You know, I really kind of feel like this whole, the whole theme of all of this is really com always comes back to safety. Um, you know, how we perceive um, our dog's safety, how the dog perceives its safety, and then also making sure that we're using the right tools and equipment to keep the dog safe in the meantime. Um, but it's really interesting that the dog is falling back on instinct in order to ensure its safety by crying out, trying to, to get back to, to, you know, mama or whatever, and make sure that it ensures its food and its survival. And our job as the, you know, furless bipeds, as you say, Brian owners is to convince the dog that it's safe by not utilizing those instincts, by utilizing an unnatural behavior, like being quiet, remaining calm and things like that. Yeah, and that's difficult to do uh, when you have instinct. And anytime you fight instinct, anytime you try to drive something from implicit 
channels into explicit channels. You've got your work cut out for you, but that's called just making an adjustment. That, that's all that is. Behavior can always be described at its most fundamental level as nothing more than our attempt to adjust to any change in our conditions. So that animal is being forced to change its behavior. It's being forced upon it for the good of that dog, the sake of that dog as well. And plus for your own sake. I mean, after all, you are human. You do have to work and you do need to have sleep. Um, so yeah, safety is a vital, vital part of that. So we have a comment on our Facebook page from someone who says that you should take the puppy to bed with you. And I completely agree that that would be an easy way to solve the problem temporarily. But what about the long term? Yeah, the and again, gosh, there's so many things, are, so many factors come into play with that advice. One, just remember, anything that you start can habituate. And once it does that, it can be very difficult to change it. So again, you have a small, cute, I mean, I remember Batman, our great Dane, he was the most adorable puppy ever. Yes, he was. So imagine bringing him to bed. Fast forward one year, 120 some odd pounds. Well, I'm not sleeping in that bed. And then on the, on the flip side, you bring this little chihuahua puppy into your bed. You roll over, you smother it, you kill it. It falls off the bed. It breaks bones. A lot of things to think about that. And then not even to mention the, the, the numerous studies that have been done in which they tried to determine which humans get the worst sleep. <laughs> and they found that by far, by far, I mean, oh my gosh, it's not even worth even considering the other stuff, that those owners who allow their pets to sleep with them get the worst sleep. There's like seven stages of sleep and they only get into like the third stage. And then, of course, after that, they said, don't have your office in your bedroom and don't be surfing your iPhone right before you go to bed, so on and so forth. But it is the, those owners who have their pets in their, in their bed with them. I, well, I think we should mention that you do not have a problem with dogs being in the bed with no, their owners. No, I do not. I do not have a problem. I just want you to think about it before you do it. Uh, just give it some thought. It has nothing to do. It will not be undermine your leadership in any sort of way. It will uh, provide social support to your puppy. No, I, I'm just one of these people, I think down the road. If I'm playing chess, I'm thinking 10 moves ahead. I'm thinking down the road because I've been doing this long enough to see what down the road looks like. And so many times we new pet owners we, we don't have the benefit of that. And man, I wish there were many times years and years ago that someone had told me what was way down the road because <laughs> I might've made another turn or done a U-turn for sure. So this is me telling you with everything that I have, hey, yeah, go for it, but, but just know this, should it ever become a situation in which, wow, man, this dog's like taking up all the room or the dog's trying to bite me every time I roll over, or my husband, my new husband says either me or the dog, and I, and I caught him in one of these dilemmas. Hey, it sure would have been easier if you just started off right in the first place. I, I was just going to say, at least the dogs don't steal the covers, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I've had a few say the dogs dive underneath the covers. Yes, and I, we actually have a client who has a dog that sleeps under her pillow. Oh, wow. Yeah, the yeah. dog sleeps right you under know, her pillow. I think the the biggest thing that I've, Picked up on the, on the, in the grapevine here, moving down the grapevine, is this worry that people have. And again, I, I agree with you to a point. The more stress you incur at an early age, 
the less amount of stress you can handle later in life. So they're very concerned that these young puppies will incur a tremendous amount of stress early in life, stress that they can't overcome, stress that could lead to other problems, other conditions. In other words, a crack of daylight in that door of the unknown, of that scary world called mental health. But let me please reassure you with this. Again, nature in her infinite wisdom gave us all the biology, the biology to handle stress because you can't get out of this world without it. So she didn't want all of us to just fall apart, including your puppy. So she gave it the ability to deal with mild to moderate stressors that are not prolonged forever and ever and ever. In most dogs that they have studied, being in a kennel is a mild to moderate stressor after a few days of acclimation. After I've learned the rules of prediction. Okay, I'm in here. First time I've ever been in one of these. What the heck's going on here? It'd be like me falling in a hole in the forest. 20 feet deep. Okay, I'm going to be a little stressed. I'm going to wonder, it, it, how long am I going to be in here for? Is anyone going to walk along and hear me screaming? You bet. You're going to go through that stressor until you determine, until you learn, hey, they do come back. About the time that sun starts peeking through those blinds over there, they show up and they always come back. And I do get fed and nothing attacks me while I'm in here. So once an, a mammal understands and learns the rules of prediction, they can now control their stress response. They can give themselves biofeedback and they can do it. I have seen puppies go from howling their head off. You think, how do you have any vocal cords left at all? <laughs> yes. To, within two days, you wonder, is there anything? Now I'm waking up in the middle of the night going, is there anything wrong with the puppy? Remember, Captain? Mm -hmm. I remember, I mean, I'm a, I, I, I'm good with sleep. Here I'll tell you that. I'm good. Sleep works with me. I'm just one of these people. I, I just sleep well. Well, I remember waking up in desk back in the middle of the night as though just my heart's beating fast and I'm going, what's going on? Then I realized, I go, oh, I don't hear captain. <laughs> I don't hear captain anymore. Oh my gosh. And then you start There's thinking, okay, wrong. all these horrible <laughs> thoughts. It's just like when you wake up in the middle of the night and you rub your hands down your belly and you feel this little bump and you think, oh my God, I got a terminal cancer. Yeah, I've got something bad going on right here. It's always the worst thoughts in the middle of the night. So, of course, I had to sneak out of bed and I went down the stairs and I woke up a perfectly sound sleeping puppy. And that was a bad mistake because, <laughs> man, he let it rip right then and there. And, of course, I had to take him out. It's all downhill from there. And then now all of a sudden I reset the rules of prediction. Oh, hey, they do come down at about 2 a.m. in the morning. Uh, so, guys. <laughs> I'm just telling you, it's not a big deal. Uh, the only time I'm going to worry is like when Kira said it the first time. If we're two months into this, you have ignored them. You shoved them in the laundry room that is downstairs on the left wing of the house. Kind of like an outer space. No one can hear you scream. And yet two months later, they're still screaming. Okay, I'm going to tell you something. That's not going to be your only problem, unfortunately. And that needs to ring a huge alarm bell in your head. And we need to take a look at this puppy. There is something wrong. 
I know right now someone out there has a puppy that's listening to us and they're going, oh, okay, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. Let the puppy in the crate, let it cry. It'll figure out that it's not going to die in the crate. I got this, I got this. And then they're going to get home and they're going to put the puppy in the crate and it's going to just be screaming its head off, like you said. And they're going to go, okay, hold on. There's no way, this, there's not something wrong with this dog. This dog is in some level of pain or hurt or traumatic experience. And like you said, it's typically not the case. You just have to wait it out, have to wait it out. And Kira, you did a, a fantastic video on this a while back called Don't Feel Guilty. <laughs> like, and, thank you, Joshua. <laughs> where, yeah, the dog is going to scream its head off and you shouldn't feel guilty for putting that dog in the furthest back room, in the furthest back closet. In and, Savannah's closet. Yeah. yeah. And, and that way you don't have to hear it go through that process of crying it out. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned a while ago, Joshua safety. I own a veterinary hospital. I know what happens to puppies when they're left alone. They do explore. They do put things in their mouth and they don't understand that this thing that I just put in my mouth is going to kill me. They don't understand that. They're, they're like little toddlers. You wouldn't let your toddler just run around 2 a.m. in the morning with, while you're sound asleep. Don't let your puppy do the same thing. So that being said, even though they don't have very good locomotion at about seven weeks of age, they will develop that locomotion. They will develop that curiosity. They have no idea that you're going to be this lifelong benefactor. So they're going to shove anything and everything in their mouths to see if that thing will supply life-sustaining energy. So therefore, that's not the time. Remember, if you want to teach something new to an animal, especially a mammal, teach it to them while they're young. If you want to learn a foreign language, learn it while you're young. It's a whole lot lear harder learning when you're my age. So therefore, I would much rather deal with a puppy who's seven weeks, 10 weeks, you name it, in, house, in crate training and go through that, that little short transient pain in the very beginning than to have to deal with that seven months later, full-blown adult dog who is quite capable of grabbing the bars of that crate, sucking it inward, tunneling underneath. And let me tell you that about that much. I cannot tell you how many dogs I've had to deal with. I'm dealing with one right now, right now that, that does everything that it can to get out of that kennel. Because why? I did get out. Oh my gosh, you just let that genie out of the bottle. You did get out. So that means if I got out once, I can certainly get out a second time. And I'm just going to give it a good old college try here. So guys, I'm thinking down the road ahead of you. Think down the road. I, again, and, and besides that, if you have not been putting your dog in a crate, then you bet. I'm going to definitely scream my head off when you put me in there. Because again, why? Why? Anything that is novel, the first thing we do is seek out the rules of prediction and control. And your animal is going to do that in a real hurry. But guys, you can count on nature, good old nature, good old wolf instinct. Unless we have some sort of genetic anomaly here, we have an animal born into the world, not able to deal with the dynamic stressors of the environment. Outside of that, then you have an animal that was equipped to learn, adapt, and overcome. Pure and simple. Did you want to say something? No. I, I, there, well, there is a comment on, on here that – we that's not pertaining to this and we can address that with the questions if you would like. I'm always game for that. Okay. Um, I tell you what, we were going to take a break, but we've got a lot of information to cover in the show. So guys, uh, if you've got to take a break, go for it, but we're just going to keep going. Anyone got anything else that Kira, anyone, Joshua, anything more about crate training and your puppy screamed his head off? I, oh, I think I did. I did. It just came back to me. Okay. So do, do little ticking clocks help? 
the, the puppy calm himself or leaving a TV on or a radio on or something like that? Is that going to help? There's not been enough done to say with absolute certainty, does it help or does it not help? Uh, they've seen total opposite reactions. Some of the puppies, they increase their barrier frustration because they go, see, they're just around the corner. I hear them. They're, they're just right over there and it's stimulating them. It's keeping them awake. It's that they can hear sounds and they, they think it's a movement. So kind of like you sleeping with your TV on. Now, a lot of people are very capable of doing that. I, for one, am not. I've got the sleep thing as long as it's dark, as long as it's quiet, and as long as I'm comfortable. And okay, the list goes on and on. But anyway, the, yeah, so one part has shown that this overstimulates them. It actually keeps them from dropping down into their REM state. And guys, I'm telling you, sleep is so important. I could do an entire two or three episodes on just the value of sleep. You ever hear the saying, wow, let me sleep on it. Wonderful advice. Because all those crazy dreams in which you're the emperor of some place and you just won the lottery like nine times over, but the only thing that you buy with is a bunch of poodles and so on and so forth. All these crazy dreams. What dreams are you having? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We won't talk about that. Anyway, all these crazy dreams you have. That is your brain consolidating memories, putting in this neuronal folder over here, this neuronal folder over there, so that it has all that long-term potentiation. And therefore, when you wake up in the morning, bingo, I got it all sorted out. I think, so I, th- I believe that I've cracked the code on this one, but I would love to run an actual study on it. But just from my observation, I've noticed that if a puppy is tends to be more stimulated by the presence of somebody and, and they tend to whine more when you're in the company then no music or TV is not the the way to go but if the issue is when somebody when you leave the sight of the the dog that's when it starts to cry you know there's a lot of dogs who they'll cry in the crate and then the moment they walk out the door the neighbor calls them while they're at work and says your dog will not shut up right and they're going oh my gosh they were fine and before i left those are the ones that the TV or the radio might help a little bit. But if, if the dog only cries when you're present, then, then the TV is only actually going to keep the dog up and, or the radio is going to keep the dog up and stimulate it. You know, absolutely. Again, um, but hey, uh, we have our Ultimate Dog Summit coming up next week, and we're going to be talking about dog TV. Yes, uh, we are. And they, they have done so some cool. research with the dog TV, and it might be something that we can use. Um, one other little thought on that, Joshua, is back to, and Kira as well, back to the ticking clock and, and leaving the TV on. Many studies have been done outside of dogs. Again, dogs are just now coming into the picture. That's why there's just not a whole lot of evidence out there regarding really anything. It's just now, within the last 10 years, this mammal has been our focus as it has evolved from being a dog. We just kind of figured ourselves out. So yeah, <laughs> well, I don't think we still have done that either. Um, <laughs> I haven't figured you out. I'm still studying <laughs> you every single day. But so for the longest time, we used non-human primates and we used rodents and so on and so forth. But I will say this much, social support. In other words, that's what that TV is supposed to be. That's what that ticking clock is supposed to be. If I'm not familiar with it, if I have not learned from it, if it has not engaged me, then it does not provide me with social support. Simply putting a rat in a cage with other rats that it does not know, there's no social support and the stress response is still elevated. However, put the rat in a cage with rats in nose and bingo, their stress response bottoms out. There's no problem there whatsoever. So it's kind of like, again, getting in an elevator full of friends or getting in an elevator full of strangers. 
So again, there's just no, there's no real evidence. And I always tell people, go for it. You know, a TV is not going to jump off the shelf and go attack your dog. So go for it. A ticking clock, go for it. And if you get positive results, you keep going for it. Keep doing it. Uh, there's no harm. As long as what we experiment, how we do it, we don't risk harming our pets. Okay? So get after it. All right. Well, I'm going to jump off of that subject. If you guys have more questions on that, um, send them in. But my vote is, hey, if I hear you crying and, and I know I checked that crate and there's nothing harmful in there and I don't have any, any other animals attacking you or whatever, I'm going to try and do my best to just go sleep and ignore it and hope that you learn very quickly. But if you keep doing that two months from now, we're going to address that. All right. A couple episodes ago, we had, we talked about think inside the box. In other words, this new desensitizing type program in which a dog is trained to eat food out of a box. His head is buried deep in a box there. And while this dog is being subjected to sounds, noises that's normally fearful of, uh, nail trims and so on and so forth. Well, anyway, one of our dear friends and a loyal listener, Kim Chappelle, she was she got deep into this thing, and no pun intended with the box there. Um, <laughs> she got deep into this, and we're thinking about doing it here with a dog that mm -hmm. uh, here in the next couple of days. Uh, we want to get this thing a shot ourselves. But she said um, that she feels, after her experience with this, that the box feeding done correctly can and does help many anxious, nervous dogs because the dog learns that sounds and touch, in some cases, are not something to be feared. Bingo. Again, if it works, give it a good shot. Way to go. Here's one thing she put out, though. <laughs> I wanted to put out there, and, and please forgive me, Kim, for doing this. She goes, please note, the distractions are not being done when the dog is eating. She goes, I didn't realize this and made my first video wrong, which is why the revisiting the box episode was crucially important because uh, it didn't mention that. So, in other words, a, a video that she watched to learn this technique failed to mention that. So, you know, which you brought that point during that episode there. We were worried that if you possibly have a food aggressive dog and it's eating in the box and you're touching it, that could cause the dog to come up out of that box in a real hurry and attack you and drive you off. But she says, no, you give the dog a kibble, it eats it. But it's trained to keep its head in the box initially because if you keep your head in the box, kibble, more kibble will come. So during the gaps between the arrival of the kibble and the dog has ingested it, now you touch the dog. Now you turn on that blower, so on and so forth. And then if the dog doesn't pull its head out of the box, boom, there's another kibble. So that's really important to yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. But hey, she says it's working for her and I know her dog very well. We've done uh, some work together, mostly online. And uh, good for you, Kim. I really appreciate you writing in and, and giving us some information on yeah, this. Yeah, that was helpful. Very and, helpful. And we're going to try it out here and we'll post our results when we do. Should videotape it. Oh, yeah, we will. We'll definitely do that. No, no doubt. Okay, so let's get on to questions because we've got about 20 minutes left and I want to answer a few questions. Sounds good. So we have a question from Chris who is looking for the right trainer for her rescue dog. How does she know she has found the right trainer? Can I go ahead and ask you all of her questions or one at a time? We have a few. Okay. It's, well, I am older now, so I'll do my best to remember. I'll go do ahead. one at a time. Go ahead. No, ask, ask them all because one okay. could actually get answered right. by the one previous. Okay. Right. Is it possible to train her dog by herself with the right tools? And how does she know if the trainer is right for her dog? 
she says there seems like there are different techniques that don't work for all dogs. So how does she know what's going to work for her dog? All right. So in answering the first question, how can I find the right trainer for my rescue dog who is a lab mix? How can I find the right trainer? Well, right off the bat, what is your goal? Determine what is the goal. If your goal is to turn this lab into a duck retrieving dog, you may need to go to a trainer who has experience training dogs to retrieve ducks. Uh, what do you need this dog to do? If you want it to be an emotional support dog, a therapy dog, just a good pet, that your goal number one will determine who you should go to, whose expertise should you draw from to help you reach that goal. So that, that one, just think about that. Uh, and is it possible to train the dog yourself with the right tools? Oh, heck yeah. Oh, you bet you, you, you can do that all day, every day. Again, I guess the biggest concern there is acquiring the right tools. And I would have to assume that, that Chris is asking or is re referring to both knowledge and skill set, physical skill set. Uh, so again, once you acquire that, you certainly can. I mean, gosh, how many dogs have been so incredibly trained just through private lessons? Mm -hmm. Some people just watching videos. Uh, we met a young man not too long ago that, hey, he'd taken a pretty decent step forward there just by off of basically mimicry from watching right. on videos and then trying to implement it and apply it. So, yeah, I would definitely think you can. Uh, sometimes, though, people will run into the physical aspect of it, meaning they are 100 pounds soaking wet and the dog that they're trying to train to not pull them is 100 pounds soaking wet. And they will often run into a physical issue there. Hey, can I compel the dog to not pull me? But yep, you bet you can do that. Um, what was the other one? Uh, how do I know if the trainer is right for me? Yes. Was that it? Yes. Okay. Uh, that, well, first of all, you determined your goal. And if you're now still looking for a trainer to impart that proper knowledge and skill set, then think of it like an interview. You need to do your research. Um, you need to ask for references, uh, testimonials, if they are there, if they're present on their website, see if they really exist. Uh, again, I hate to put that out there, but it is what it is. You know, a lot of people come up with fake testimonials and so on and so forth. So ask for references. And then when you meet this particular trainer, go by that instinct of yours. We have this thing called the pit of our stomach for a reason. That's your amygdala. That is that little part of your brain who will pick up on signals long before you're consciously aware of them. And you're sitting there studying this person, listening to them. You're going, if something's going, ah, uh, no way. Not even thinking that. I'm not going to do that with my dog. No way, no how. I don't like this person, so on and so forth. Well, you might just want to try trainer number two. You know, that's a really hard one to answer. Well, and I also think she says I feel, or he, sorry, Chris could be boy or girl. I feel like there are different techniques that don't work for all dogs. So this is where, you know, I always recommend, you know, this is where you're going to want to find a balanced trainer. Um, balanced trainers are, are going to, we call ourselves balanced trainers, not because we use um, both 
reward and punishment. We, we call ourselves balance trainers because we find the balance of what the dog needs. Some dogs need more of this. Some dogs need more of that. We have a multiple tools in which that we, that we're capable of using and multiple methods in which we're capable of using. So we typically find, we as in balance trainers typically find the technique that do work for your dog. Yeah. I mean, again, go back to your goal. So to answer that question, go back to your first question. Your goal will determine your methodology that you should use. If I'm teaching my dog to roll over, I don't need anything balanced. I'm just going to say, here's a treat. If you roll over like that, then you get the treat. So again, if it's just dog tricks or something like that, a treat's going to work. If you're doing the in the box thing, uh, think inside the box technique, wow, that treat's going to work. However, if reliable obedience is your goal and meaning, I want my dog to be able to run freely off leash, but I do need my dog to come to me when I call it. Well, again, you better either be holding the holy grail of rewards every single time. And the dog says, you know, there is nothing in the world that I want more than that reward. I don't care what it is. If you don't have that, well, then there's got to be another reason to come to you, hence being balanced. So again, that all depends upon what your goal is uh, will determine the methodology that you should use. And the person imparting that methodology upon you should be very experienced. Uh, again, depending on, well, I shouldn't say that. If your goal is a really simple little goal, then they don't have to have that much experience, just more than you. <laughs> and then you have to... Um, implement it. And in the process of implementing, life is the master teacher. She will give you feedback and don't ignore the feedback. I tell people at any day, how many times do we hear, wow, that makes sense. Every day, multiple times. Yeah, that makes sense. All the time. Wow. You know, Every I didn't think lesson. about it like that. That makes sense. Okay. That's good. That's a green light. Keep proceeding. But the second you go, that didn't make a like I said, I don't care how many big words this guy is using. I don't care what he looks like. I don't care how many books he's written. That just does not make a lick of sense. Shut it down. At least go to a yellow light. Proceed cautiously or shut it down. Stop. And reevaluate the situation and reevaluate what you need to do. Gosh, I hope that helped. I don't know if that was good or not, but I sure hope it helped. That's about all I can say on it. Okay, so next question is from Adam. We rescued a feral dog a couple of months ago. We thought she would begin to trust us after spending time in our home, but she hasn't. She won't even eat or drink unless no one is home. Is there anything we can do to help her begin to accept humans? Okay, uh, you know me, scientist, scientist in me. Uh, feral dogs are dogs who can live completely and utterly without human beings. Uh, they can hunt, they can form organized groups, so on and so forth. So I'm going to classify this dog as a free-ranging dog. Free-ranging dogs are dogs who do depend upon humans, dumpsters, trash, you name it, some handouts, all that sort of stuff. And there is a big difference. Free-ranging dogs are typically find themselves being free-ranging because either A, they escaped, or B, they were kicked to the curb, so on and so forth. And some are born out as free-ranging dogs. But the vast majority of them are dogs who have just started roaming the streets, which means they've had some prior experience and in interactions with humans. And that can be a good thing. And that can be a bad thing. In most cases, it is a bad thing. So if you have a dog who's been wandering around your home, and suddenly this dog is trapped, and you bring it into your home, be 
very patient. In other words, this could take some time. Uh, I think I told the story one time on this show about I was following behind uh, a BMW and suddenly it slammed on the brakes and I slammed on my brakes. And this lady bails out the driver's door wearing a skirt and high heels. In other words, a nice business suit for a woman. And she goes racing towards the woods. So, of course, I start to panic because I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you got what, what is in that car that made her bail out that car like that? <laughs> was it a big B, a hornet, wasp, or is it a guy with a gun or something? So I'm kind of freaking out myself. And then, you know, come to find out, she was chasing a dog that had been running around loose or stray around the neighborhood for a long time. So now look at it from the dog's perspective. Okay, I'm wandering here along this little trail. And suddenly I hear, Boom, door shuts, and here comes, hey, you, 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 come here, come here, come here. And your arms flailing, eyes wide. I'm being attacked. And it happens, you know, in, in our attempt to be good Samaritans and to rescue these dogs, we inadvertently, from their perception, become attackers, chasers. So it could take a while before this dog builds trust. And again, the longer I've been out there away from humans, you human, you're not providing me social support. Again, I am trying to pick up the rules of prediction and control. That can take a long time. And by golly, if they ever were attacked by a human, abused by a human, they may never overcome that. And that has to be in the back of your mind as well. This just may never happen. And they may have to go on medications that can minimize and mitigate the harmful effects of their stress response. They may have to have indulgal senses just a little bit, make you just a little bit calm and not so anxious and so fearful so that you have the opportunity to view the situation from a different set of eyes, from a brain that now starts to work. So yeah, it, it can be done, but the fact that the animal is extremely jumpy around sounds and anxious and, and will eat and drink is a good thing because typically if you're really, really, really stressed, regardless of whether humans around or not, you're not going to eat or drink. So it's the human, is that's the projection. It's the human that the animal perceives as a threat. And gosh, there's so many reasons why that could have could occur. Oh my gosh, but man, go slow. Don't push it. Let this animal learn through its own self-discovery. Let it learn. Let it learn. Keep feeding it. Keep doing it. And I've seen this take a year, a year to overcome. And then, of course, unfortunately, I've seen some that they never did. They never. So that's about the best I can do for that one. Sorry if I hope I could do more. Okay. This is from Kathy. My dog was recently put on fluoxetine. I have noticed some unwanted changes in his behavior. He is acting more afraid than before, and he's starting to be disobedient at home. What is going on? Okay. Uh, Phylloxetine, that's an antidepressant of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor class. If your dog was placed on an antidepressant, then if it was done so properly, then it is assumed that the animal's the animal suffering from brain dysfunction. Antidepressants are used to increase singling. Uh, neurotransmitters try to talk to another uh, brain cell. If the brain cell doesn't pay attention, they're going, hey, hey, you, hey, you, hey, you. But the brain cell never responds, never becomes activated. Then the brain cell that sent the signal through the axon terminal and it became a neurotransmitter, try to travel across the synapse to the brain cell. If it doesn't get absorbed, it's not received by the other brain cell 
over a period of time, it will either A, wash away, percolate into the bloodstream and just leave the body, or it will be taken back, kind of recycled by that brain cell. Antidepressants keeps the neurotransmitter, and in this case, serotonin is one. There's hundreds of neurotransmitters, but serotonin is the one that is chosen, and it's going to just park it in that synapse a little bit longer. So now it's, hey, you, hey, you. Hey, you. And also the other brain cell goes, what? Why are you screaming at me? Bingo. I finally got you to pay attention to me. Now I can influence your behavior. So now you have proper communication happening with the brain, which now means you have the ability to properly assimilate the information flowing into it. You will have a better chance of discerning what is a threat, what's not a threat. Anxiety at that point should start to lessen. So again, that's what fluoxetine is. And that's why it was given to your dog. However, if the dosage of fluoxetine is too high, you can start to notice some seizures or trembling of the dog simply because you could be reaching more like serotonin toxicity or serotonin syndrome. Too much of a good thing is a bad thing. And so therefore, that could be a, a, a condition that's occurring. Number two, on a better side, hey, there's a phenomena with dogs, not so much with humans, but with dogs. When you're, you have brain dysfunction, everything in your world collapses down to a narrow little tube. Imagine looking through a spyglass because that's what happens when we're looking for danger. I mean, all of a sudden, oh, is there something scary out there? Your eyes become dilated. You can hear better. But man, you're not checking. You're looking for the area that you thought for sure that danger must be lurking. You're not, you don't care about anything else. So that being said, you live your world kind of through a spyglass. But then guess what? When your brain starts working correctly, the aperture on that spyglass widens and it suddenly takes in things, things kind of like a toilet bowl. I've seen this happen with dogs on antidepressants. Suddenly, oh, what the heck is that? And it makes this weird sound when, when someone does something to it, like flushing. It, you know, it's kind of funny, but it's the actual truth. They suddenly wake up. They're now in a world with all these sights and sounds and sensations, kind of like plucking someone out of the middle of nowhere, Alaska, and send them straight to Las Vegas. Holy moly. They're going to shake too. They're going to act a little bit more, a little bit off at that point there. Because again, wow, what's all this going on? And finally, on a good note, okay, so long story short, had a client, put the dog on an antidepressant, a couple other medications. Dog was very fearful. So fearful, it would not leave his backyard, would not even go off the back deck. It just would be, it was constantly afraid. Okay, two months into the pharmacotherapy, the veterinarian took the dog off the medication. And when I asked the client why, she said, because my dog, A, got into my trash can, he used to never get my trash can, chewing on my sofa, and it runs off. I'm like, oh my God, you're getting a normal dog. <laughs> you have a normal dog. Welcome. You have a normal dog. Be careful what you wish for. But your dog, because of its, of its brain dysfunction, wouldn't even leave the back deck. It was so afraid it wouldn't leave the back deck. Now it's checking out the whole world. And it didn't care what was in that trash can. It didn't matter because I was so stressed. And the sofa, I hid underneath it. I didn't chew on it. So sometimes that happens as well. So a whole bunch of things going on there. So whoever wrote this question in, hey, the best thing you can do, give me a call. Write me an email. I can get in this thing a whole lot deeper than, unfortunately, what an hour will allow on the show. 
Okay, so we're going to get ready to wrap up here. A couple of things real quick. Um, next week, the title of the show is Party Foul. We're going to be talking about a bunch of individuals, especially up in the academia world, who have launched an absolute war on us balanced trainers. And we're not taking too kindly to that. Reason why it's not like we're personally offended. It's just for the welfare of the pets. That is always for, for, first and foremost with us. And also next week, we're starting our ultimate dog summit. You want to know more about that? Go to our homepage on our website, tamethewild.com, and you can register for free. And I'm here to tell you, oh, please do it. Please make it seem like that whole last, how many months, Kira? January 2nd, we started working on it. Yeah, please make it, make us feel like that was worth it. because we did. It was it for, definitely worth it. Think we did for you guys. Learned. You can attend yeah. the whole darn thing for free and we did it for you. All right, we got to get. So you guys have a great week. Remember on Monday is Veterans Day. Um, just say hello to a veteran. Give them a pat on the back. They certainly sacrificed a lot for you. And we'll be seeing you guys again next Wednesday. You will not want to miss this, this next episode. I may stand for the whole darn time. I may have to. All right. Have a great week. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join host Brian Bailey again for another edition of Taming the Wild and Your Dog next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Your dog's welfare and your life may depend on it. 